Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you, a real honor to be with you. Another Monday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 49. I know last week I mentioned that there was a good chance we would wrap up our series of reflections into the book of Genesis this week. Well, it appears that this will probably be pushed into next week because I'm going to want to uh, set aside time to answer your questions and then also more or less wrap up with a, a final reflection into everything we have talked about from Genesis 1 through 50. So our study will go into next week, uh, but for this week we do have Genesis chapters 49 and 50 before us. So if you want to pull open your Bibles and turn to chapter 49. Now, chapter 49 is a little different because it is this, well, poetic prophecy, if you will, that very much speaks to the future of the 12 tribes. In fact, these are Jacob's last words to his sons. So for most of chapter 49, we have this poetic prophecy from Jacob to his sons, and then we will discuss some verses here at the end that speaks to Jacob's death and burial. I want to close this evening with Oh, a bit of a reflection on the fourth spiritual work of mercy, comforting the sorrowful, as we will read of Joseph grieving the death of his father. I thought it would be timely to talk about a very important spiritual work of mercy, comforting the sorrowful, comforting the afflicted. So we will afford some time this evening to do that as well. Now, as we go through these verses, I thought what I would do is just comment uh, on each tribe, on each son, as each prophecy is given. I will lean heavily this evening into the St. Ignatius commentary. I love their commentary, their insight, their brief reflections into each son, so we will be drawing from them uh, quite a bit this evening, and then as we do so, certainly I will be offering up my own reflections. All right, so with that, flip to Genesis chapter 49. By way of a brief overview to kind of set the, the scene here, what you have is the 12 sons of Jacob gathering around uh, his deathbed to receive his blessing. Now, these benedictions, really uttered in poetic verse, as I mentioned, are prophetic oracles about the future of the tribes of Israel. So, allusions are made to the occupation of Canaan under Joshua and the Judges. Uh, allusions are made to the rise of the Israelite monarchy under David and his successors. Uh, allusions are made to the dawning of the Messianic age. So what you have in these prophetic oracles are a series of allusions that speak to how God is going to work in and through these 12 tribes, these 12 sons in salvation history. And now it's interesting if, again, we are in the business of structuring these prophetic oracles— the names of the sons, the twelve sons, are grouped according to their respective mothers. So, Jacob blesses first the sons of Leah, who were the sons of Leah, but Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar, right? 
Then he blesses the sons of his concubines, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And then, of course, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. All right, 49 verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, and and picture this, you know, you you have the 12 sons around his deathbed. Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in days to come. Now, that's pretty ominous, huh? (laughs) What shall befall you in days to come? Days to come renders a a Hebrew expression that appears in other prophetic poems about Israel's future. You see it in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Hosea, days to come. Assemble and hear, O sons of Jacob, and hearken to Israel your father. Right, No longer Jacob, but Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in pride and, and preeminent in power, unstable as water. Wow, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, you went up to my couch. So, what's going on there? Well, in verses three to four, we see Reuben, who is Jacob's oldest son being rebuked, rebuked for his pride and sexual aggression. This, of course, made him unfit to receive the uh, honored firstborn blessing that we've been spending so much time talking about. All right, verse 5. Simon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Ooh. O my soul, come not into their counsel. O my spirit, be not joined in their company. For in their anger they slay men, and in their wantonness they hamstring oxen. Wow, again, they, these are no blessings necessarily, but here, a, a very explicit curse. I mean, Jacob curses the fury of Simeon and Levi, who conspired to slaughter the defenseless city of Shechem, much as recall <laughs> to his father's irritation back in chapter 34. So this oracle, my friends, foresees how the Simeonites will eventually divide and ultimately, we could say, dissolve into various cities in the territory of Judah, and ultimately how the Levites will disperse throughout Canaan to dwell in 48 separate cities. Something we should take stock in as we're going through this is the fallout from sin. What follows our sin but chaos, disorder, disunity, a real fallout. And I cannot imagine what Simeon and Levi must have been thinking when they were hearing the words of their father. But again, my friends, something to see here is that these oracles are judgments. And what we should be counseled on is the importance of our final judgment, okay? Our final conversation that we will have with Jesus Christ. Hopefully we can Take all the right notes as we are going through this to be attentive to why there is curses and why there are blessings. Because in the end, in our own lives, by the grace of God, hopefully we too are blessed like those who are blessed among the 12 tribes, certainly Judah and Joseph among others. Okay, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. There it is. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Ooh, there's the image of the bowing down, right? Does that not recall how Joseph dreamed of his brothers 
bowing before him in homage. Here, this verse indicates that all the tribes of Israel will acknowledge the kingship of Judah. As verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he lurked as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To whom it belongs. An international ruler is to come from the line of of Judah, right? This is what we see in this verse. Now, we could say that this oracle is preliminarily fulfilled in David and Solomon, right? Because David and Solomon are both from the line of the tribe of Judah. And when they ruled as kings over Israel and, and neighboring nations, certainly we could see that David and Solomon were international rulers. But of course, you and I both know that its ultimate fulfillment comes with the heavenly enthronement of Jesus Christ, who is both Lord of all nations, and as Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 reminds us, the line of the tribe of Judah. And how about the end of that verse, verse 10? And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We should not steer away from that all-important word, obedience. A word that when you break it down in the Latin, obadire, literally translates as to listen. Recall how we have talked about this before. Remember, Paul, in his letter to the Epistle of Rome, accentuates, punctuates his whole book with the phrase obedience of faith by opening up with the phrase in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, and closing with it in chapter 16, verse 26. Essentially, this phrase, obedience of faith, our book ends to this epistle because he wants us to see the importance of just not obedience, listening to God, but also a listening to God that has a, a firm response. Because remember, Paul is translating the Old Testament vision to faith, huh? The Hebrew word there is emunah, uh, responsive listening, firm response. St. Paul wants us to see that in Jesus Christ, We have the universal king who demands our obedient response. Maybe he was thinking about verse 10. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right. Verse 11. Binding his fool to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Now, what's going on with that phrase, uh, the blood of grapes? Well, if you're to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 14, you see that it is a poetic description of wine or grape juice. The idea here, my friends, is that wine will be so abundant in the Messianic age that people will use it for such meal tasks as washing clothes. Now, allegorically... Certainly, there's a whole lot of imagery going on as it points to Christ because the wine stains really point to the blood stains of the Messiah, whose death cleansed the garment of the world from sin. We have to remember something, my friends, that blood is life-giving, right? And when our blood is mixed with the blood of Christ, what do you have? But a soul who is now life-giving. 
we receive the blood of Christ that we might go forth empowered with this new life-giving, animating force that is the very life of God now abiding within us. And we do so, of course, by making sure that we are putting on the garment of Christ. So, a lot of imagery here in these verses for sure. All right, how about verse 13? Zebulon, another son, Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. I love that. So, here, Joseph is saying that Zebulon will prosper as a maritime people in northwest Canaan. Certainly there is a blessing there, huh? How about verse 14 in Issachar? Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a slave at forced labor. So here we see the tribe of Issachar will bow to the what but yoke of Canaanite slavery just to enjoy the the fertile plain assigned to it in central Palestine. You know, as we're going through these verses, we should also be reminded that when you go into poetry and antiquity, what you quickly discover is the extraordinary imagery used from creation. And this was common because creation was a point of reflection for the Jew, and just not trees and plants and and the water and the mountains, but animals too. And, and animals signified certain things. So when Israel is speaking to certain animals, those animals are tied to uh, attributes either bad or good. So each oracle, as it calls out or calls to a particular aspect of creation, it does so in the mind of the first readers with real palpable meaning. And again, this is important as we go through these verses and interpret them. All right, verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So here the tribe of Dan, though small, will take down larger enemies like a viper topples an unsuspecting horseman. Speaking of image, a very striking image that Jacob uses here. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So the tribe of Gad will be forced to retaliate against desert marauders who invade and and plunder his settlements east of the Jordan. Note that for Jacob, uh, demographics and, and location, geography is all very important when you start getting into the conquest of the promised land. All right, verse 20, and Asher, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. This, of course, speaks to uh, an abundance of choice foods. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose that bears comely fawns. (laughs) So the tribe of Naphtali will be as fruitful and graceful as a mother deer. If I had a favorite image, it might be verse 21, is a deer let loose that bears comely fawns. So fruitful and graceful will be Naphtali. All right, how about Joseph, verse 22? Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers fiercely attack him, shot at him and harassed him sorely, yet his bow remained unmoved. 
His arms were made agile. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the God of your father who will help you, by God Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the eternal mountains, the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was separate from his brothers. Wow. <laughs> so here we have Joseph, who is exceedingly blessed. And certainly we can infer this by the six-fold repetition of the Hebrew root for bless, right, in these final stanzas. Joseph, the man of no guile, the man of forgiveness, the man of wisdom, the interpreter of dreams, now receives this six-fold blessing. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So here we see Benjamin will devour his enemies like a wolf that feasts upon its prey. Benjamin, another one who is looked upon with uh, great joy from his father. Now, as we transition into these closing verses of chapter 49, we we do so with Jacob's death and burial. And as I noted earlier, this will afford us the opportunity to talk about that spiritual work of mercy comforting the sorrowful. All right, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were purchased from the Hittites. So when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Okay, with that, this fourth spiritual work of mercy comforting the sorrowful, I thought timely again as we see Joseph grieving over the death of his father, his beloved father, a spiritual work of mercy that also has the title Comforting the Afflicted. My dear friends, as we know, <laughs> sorrow comes as the result of innumerable other things than just death. Uh, betrayal by a friend, the end of a valued relationship, maybe unfair treatment, feeling alone, a disappointment or a failure. There are many things to why we grieve. And when it comes to sorrow, what we should first understand is that Jesus truly is our guide. We could say that Jesus conducted a ministry of presence with those who were grieving a death. If we're going to, in particular, reflect upon death, we should consider how Jesus conducted a ministry of presence to those who were, who, who were dying, right? He went to be with mourners. When the widow of Nain lost her only son, he went to her. And what do we read in Luke chapter 7, verse 13? He was moved with pity for her. <laughs> when the daughter of Jairus died, 
Jesus went to the home of her parents who were weeping and mourning. When Martha and Mary lost their brother Lazarus, Jesus went to Bethany to be with him. And what do we read in John chapter 11, verse 35? He wept with them. He conducted a ministry of presence. Jesus went, went, because his heart was about comforting the sorrowful. What is that passage that we read from Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 13, where God says, I will console and gladden them after their sorrows. And so it is for us today, my friends, that we might lean into the Holy Spirit, the comforter, by the way. The Holy Spirit is the Paracletus, we read in the Gospel of John. You translate that, the Holy Spirit is the comforter the one who brings the divine gifts of consolation and peace. And for this reason alone, we are reminded, brothers and sisters, that we are but agents of the Holy Spirit who by the virtue of this great gift of the Holy Spirit carry within us now this power to bring consolation, to to bring peace. And so it is in this spiritual work of mercy. God asks us to bring comfort to the sorrowful as as messengers of presence, if Jesus conducted a ministry of presence, we too then should be messengers of God's presence. And here I'm thinking just the the very simple act of going to someone, going to a person who is in need. Maybe that looks like attending the wake or the funeral. Maybe that looks like actually visiting their home and offering a kind word. My dear friends, Comforting the sorrowful requires, uh, we could say, the greatest patience, uh, the greatest sensitivity, and maybe, best said, the greatest silence. Why would I say that? Well, that is because sorrow or grief often has a life and logic of its own, right? And sometimes grieving has to run its course, if you will. Often there is very little a person can say when grief is present, right? What does St. Paul say in Romans chapter 12, verse 15? Weep with those who weep. So that is what we do, right? We weep. St. Augustine once observed that sighs and tears and prayer often accomplish more than words. And so it is that when people are sorrowful, their grief and tears are their prayer. And my friends, we would do very well to honor that truth rather than to say, don't be sad or or cheer up, or or God cannot give us anything we cannot handle. We don't say those kinds of things. That is very sloppy, and the Spirit is never sloppy. This is why a largely silent and respectful silence can be a way of honoring grief and maybe signaling a true camaraderie. Now, if one notices a person getting stuck in his grief, not making the progress of moving through it in stages, certainly, my friends, more will be needed, but not right away. People need time to grieve. And the thing of it is, some people take longer than others, right? And so, in that sense, there's no single right way to grieve. To comfort and to consult requires a sensitivity. A sensitivity on our part that seeks to discover what the person needs, not on our terms, but on his terms or her terms. Again, people are sorrowful for many reasons. And we can be angels of consolation by simply listening. Now, the word comfort in terms of its original meaning involves something maybe more vigorous than merely just giving comfort. The Latin uh, there is cumfortis. 
so with strength or, or to be strong. So thus to comfort someone in its older etymological roots means to strengthen them, strengthen them. And in this sense, we could probably say that the word comfort is better paired with the other traditional rendering of this spiritual work of mercy. What, what did I say earlier? Comforting the afflicted. What does afflicted mean? Well, what do you think about when you hear the word afflicted? Maybe you've been struck down. Maybe you've been weakened. Maybe you've been injured. Well, the spiritual work of mercy, comforting the afflicted, I think becomes more vigorous in this sense. Because to comfort the afflicted in this sense means probably to restore man to strength, to, to enable him to persevere, to summon him to the courage that, that strongly resists those who would seek to render him weak or ineffective. Okay, so again, this then is probably the more vigorous understanding of the fourth spiritual work of mercy, as we would define it, comforting the afflicted, comforting the afflicted. Now, in either sense, brothers and sisters, this is a work of mercy that is restorative of a brother or sister to the normal Christian state of being joyful, to the normal Christian state of being confident, to the normal Christian state of being strong. And for this reason, this is a very powerful uh, act of mercy, spiritual work of mercy. And so as I turn back and look at these verses where I read, and, and we read Joseph grieving greatly, maybe we are reminded of times where we have either grieved the loss of a loved one or have been called to comfort the one who is grieving. Either way, my friends, as we wrap up a reflection into chapter 49 on this great oracle from, from Jacob to his sons, we close with this brief reflection into this spiritual work of mercy because I think we ought to be reminded of the importance, the importance of this great act. This great act we are called to as God calls us to be messengers of consolation, messengers of strength, and messengers of encouragement. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.